evening we'll be looking at Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Eight pounds, six ounces, born on a Monday afternoon in the middle of the summer. His arrival was long anticipated. People gathered outside the place of his birth so that they could be first to get the news. And possibly, if they waited long enough, they could even get a glimpse of the baby. But it wasn't just a a crowd of locals who were concerned about this birth. People all over the world were waiting to hear the news. The child of which I'm speaking is Prince George, who was born on July 22, 2013. And England was very much interested in the news of his birth. And we would expect that the future king's birth would be met with great anticipation. But as far as the birth of a king's go of, of a king goes, Jesus' birth is far from ordinary. He's not met with the same worldwide attention. The most powerful people in the world are largely unconcerned about his arrival. One king is concerned, but only because he's afraid of having him take over his throne. He's met by some animals and a few rugged shepherds, but not as much as we would expect from the king of all kings. And that's what we read about this evening in Luke chapter 2. So let me read our text for us, beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of God. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night, And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as He lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. All who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds, but Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. I think the point of this passage that we're looking at tonight is Come thou long-expected Jesus, born to set His people free. 
Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set His people free. We see four main points in this passage. First, God is so sovereign over history. He controls history to allow Jesus to be born at precisely the time and place in which He is to be born. Second, God gives grace to the humble. Third, John is better than John the ba- or Jesus is better than John the Baptist. And then fourth, Jesus is the promised Messiah. So number one, God is sovereign over history, verses one through six. Luke here is recording the history of these events in order to show that Jesus is the promised Messiah, as we'll see later, but also that God is sovereign over all the events of life. And that he brings about what he wants the way that he wants. We might not think it's a big deal that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He could have been born in Nazareth, right? Why, why was it so important? But we know it's important because Micah predicted that Bethlehem, Ephrathah, would be the place of His birth. It would be the city from which this great ruler of Israel would come. And so the fact that Luke records how Joseph and Mary make their way to Bethlehem so that He would be born there is significant. And it's significant because it shows us that God is sovereign over history. The problem with Jesus being born in Bethlehem from a human perspective was that Joseph and Mary lived nowhere near Nazareth. So what was going to bring them there? What was going to bring them 85 to 90 miles away from their home in 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 a time in history when transportation was not easy? And the answer how they were going to make their way to Bethlehem is found in verse 1. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited, uh, uh, all the inhabited earth. Caesar Augustus is the emperor of Rome. He is the emperor of the Roman Empire. So all the Romans who live around the world are subject to him. And in fact, the, the Roman Empire was in, uh, basically in control of much of the known earth. And so he sends out a decree for all the Romans to come and be uh, be counted. Now, this was pri- primarily not designed to see how many people they had in military service. I mean, the fact that Jews are included in this census suggests that it was more than that because Jews actually were exempt from military service. Instead, the reason for this uh, apparently was to get a census for tax purposes. How many people did he have under his rule so that he could know how much money he was going to be able to charge these people and bring in as revenue. And apparently this governor of Syria, Cyrenius, in verse 2, was tasked with taking up this census. Perhaps he was an official who worked for the emperor and his job was to take up the census. And so Joseph and Mary make the trip. Now, Mary was likely not required to take part in the census. Typically, these were uh, just the census of the men. And so the fact that she comes along could have been for a few reasons. One, um, Joseph could have brought her along because he wanted to remove her from the slander that she would have been receiving back home. Right? She's just a young girl. She's unmarried. And now she's pregnant. And what, what does that look like to the public, to, to her own friends and family? So he could have been bringing her along with him in order to protect her from that slander. Secondly, he could have been bringing her along with him in order uh, that that he wouldn't miss out on the delivery of the baby, right? If she's 
uh, great with child, and obviously we know that she actually has the baby while she's in Bethlehem, he would have made it back from his trip having missed that important time. So they make the 85-mile trip through the mountains. would have taken probably three to five days. We might look at this event or these events of them coming from Nazareth to Bethlehem and think, well, what's so important about that? It just, just was a coincidence that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But we know that it was much more than that because God was bringing about history. He was bringing about the prophecies of the Old Testament so that they would come about exactly as He had predicted through the prophets. That God is the one who brought Jesus to Bethlehem to be born there. So, the first thing that we see here is that God is sovereign over history. The second thing that we see is found in verse 7, and that is that God gives grace to the humble. And we'll see this theme come up again even uh, next time when we look at the end of chapter 2. That God gives grace to the humble. It's amazing how poor that Joseph and Mary are. In fact, if you skip down to verse 24, they come to present Jesus uh, to the temple. He's he's circumcised there in verse 21. He's given His name. And then she has to wait another 33 days to be purified. And then she comes and offers a sacrifice to the temple. Notice what kind of sacrifice that they offer in, in verse 24. To offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, that, if you understand Old Testament law, Old Testament, the, the sacrificial system, you understand that if someone's bringing a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, it means they're extremely poor. They're, they're in abject poverty because the normal sacrifice for a burnt offering was what? It was a lamb. Right? But if someone was too poor to bring a lamb, they couldn't afford a lamb, they couldn't afford to raise a lamb, they couldn't afford to buy a lamb and then offer it as a sacrifice, here's what Leviticus says that they can bring instead. A pair of turtle doves. So that one could be used for the burnt offering and one for the sin offering. Or two young pigeons. One for the burnt offering, one for the sin offering. And so what, what we're going to see here, now, now you can go back to verse 7, is that God gives grace to the humble. She gave birth to her firstborn son and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. We should see here that the birth of the king is not met with the same kind of worldwide acclaim as Prince George. Instead, Jesus has a lowly birth. And this is the way that God often deals with people. He gives grace to those who are humble. Joseph and Mary are not wealthy. They're not popular. And they are extremely poor. And yet God comes and shows mercy to them. God provides a place for them and she's able to give birth to Him even in the, uh, the very little means with the, with the very little means that they had. Now, when we think about the birth of Jesus, we need to think that we need to understand that there was nothing miraculous about His birth. There was nothing miraculous about her pregnancy. What was miraculous was the conception that, that she had conceived in her a child apart from a man, right? But, but the pregnancy would have been normal just like any other pregnancy. The birth would have been normal just like any other birth. She would have gone through great pain to deliver this child. So we have a miraculous conception, but not a miraculous birth. The poverty is seen not only in the lack of notoriety, but also in this poor setting. Notice where they lay him after he is born in a manger. 
a manger. If you look in the margin of your Bible, perhaps you have a note there like my Bible does, and it reads, a feeding trough. And that's really what it was. It's not clear if, if Jesus was born in a stable or in a cave, probably a place where animals lived, though, at the very least. And, and He was put into the feeding trough, the place where the animals would come. Don't think all clean. You know, it just had been cleaned out by people and it smelled really nice. Uh, this was about the worst place that a child could be born. And He's laid there in the feeding trough as a place to rest. God gives grace to the humble. Number three, Jesus is better than John the Baptist. Jesus is better than John the Baptist. First, God is sovereign over history. God gives grace to the humble. And then Jesus is better than John the Baptist. Verses 8 and 9. Now, skip back to chapter 1, verses, verse 56. I'm sorry, verse 57. Now, the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed His great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. That's all we have recorded for John's birth. John, John is a man who is great. Jesus will later call him among all men who are born of women. There is none that is greater than John. And so John is great, and yet Luke only records this short amount of space. He only gives a short amount of, uh, of uh, words to the birth of John. In chapter 1, verse 76, John is called by his father the prophet of the Most High. And verses 67 through 79, a lot of that is a praise of John the Baptist by his father. And so, John is a great man. But what we're going to find is here in chapter 2 is that Jesus is greater. Instead of there being a record of just a, a short paragraph about John's birth, for Jesus there is these 20 verses, three paragraphs essentially. Verses 1-20 through 20 is all about Jesus' birth. And so, His birth is much more significant than John. And He's not the prophet of the Most High like John is. He is called the Son of the Most High God, as was uh, predicted by the angel in, um, in chapter 1. In addition to that, it wasn't just His Father who responded with praise, but it was also the shepherds. And amazingly, as we're going to see here in just a second, the angels in heaven. It's as if all of the hosts of heaven rejoices at the birth of this child. So we read about in verse 8, in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened. The worshipers that gathered for the birth of Jesus will be described more fully here, but, but what we learn is that there is a great host of worshipers who are ready to come and worship Him. First the angels, then this, this group of shepherds. Jesus is better than John the Baptist. And then fourthly, Jesus is the promised Messiah. This is what Luke wants us to understand from the account of His birth. That God is sovereign over history. That God gives grace to the humble. That Jesus is better than John the Baptist. And that fourthly, Jesus is the promised Messiah. There are several clues that we get that Jesus is the promised Messiah. One, He's born in Bethlehem like Micah predicted in chapter 5, verse 2. But also because the angels reveal His identity to the shepherd. Look at verse 10. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. This was the common expression that angels would give whenever they would approach someone here on the earth because obviously people were afraid. Do not be afraid. 
For behold, I bring you good news of great joy which will be for all people. I bring you good news. That word, or those two words, that phrase, good news, is actually one word in the Greek and it can be translated gospel. I bring you the gospel of great joy which will be for all people. What is that gospel? That the Messiah is here. It is that the Messiah is here and that His message is going to go out beyond just His own people, the Jews. It's going to go, look at the end of verse 10 again, which will be for all the people. The angel continues on in verse 11, For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Here's why we know that this is the Messiah. This is just not any ordinary birth. That is, it's not just any ordinary child being born. This is the Savior. He would be the one who would remove Israel from Roman domination. He would be the one who would remove the people from their sickness. He would get rid of disease and sin and death. And we saw a glimpse of that in His first coming. We'll see it very clearly in His second coming. That Jesus is the Savior of the world. The primary reason He came was not to remove them out from Roman domination or from sickness or disease, but ultimately from sin and its consequences. The proof that, the, that this is a true prophecy from the angels is found in verse 12. The angels are speaking to the shepherds and they say this, This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Here's the sign. Here's how you will know that what I'm telling you is true. That this indeed is the Savior. And it is. You're going to find a child wrapped in cloths and lying in a feeding trough. When you see that, you'll know that what I'm saying is true. And so the, the shepherds take, take Him at His word. Notice verse 15, when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. Shepherds believe the angels and act upon what they know, what they are confident in, that this indeed is the Savior, and they go and worship Him. Verse 16, they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told about this child. And all who heard about it wondered at the things which are told them by the shepherds. Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all they heard and seen, just as had been told them. So the, the shepherds respond properly. They respond in obedience to the angel. They believe the word of the angel that this indeed is the Savior. They go to see the angel or, or they go to see this child. And then they, they, they respond finally by telling people about it and returning back to their fields glorifying and praising God. This is what should happen at the birth of Jesus. This is what should happen at the birth of the Messiah. And the, the uh, shepherds, poor as they are, insignificant in terms of human uh, level of achievement, Yet God uses them to announce the birth of Christ. But not only is the birth of Christ met with earthly praise by these few shepherds, by these few shepherds, but but also 
The birth of Jesus is met with heavenly praise. And this is what's most striking in this passage, I think. Verse 13, And suddenly there appeared with the angels. So first you have this one angel talking to the shepherd, giving them instructions. And then with the angel appeared a multitude of the heavenly host. It doesn't say how many, but could very well be every single angel in heaven. And they praised God saying this, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased. They had a better understanding of the significance of this birth than the people of this earth understood. Because they knew the prophecy. They, they understood what many people ignored. And notice what they sing in Latin, verse 14. Gloria in excelsis Deo. That's why we sing that song at Christmas time. Glory to God in the highest. It's a Latin phrase that, that is translated there and that we use in our song. Notice the result of the Savior's arrival. It is peace on earth. And on the earth, peace among men with whom He is pleased. Now, people during that day under Roman Empire would have been offered the Pax Romana, which is the peace of Rome. Under it, they would receive special treatment because they were part of the, this Roman Empire. But the Prince of Peace would provide something far better. And we know this peace. And it's for those who trust in Him. Romans 5.1 says, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the peace that, that is offered here is not the peace that our world waits for. Our world is waiting for, you know, just a worldwide peace. Just when we can all just kind of get along. That's not the peace that Jesus has come to offer. He's come to offer peace to those who are willing to submit themselves to Him and reject the things of this world, take up their cross and follow Him. Those are the type of people that God provides and plans peace for. And I hope that you recognize that when a person uh, wishes for peace or when they pray for peace, that only the only true worldwide peace that will come will not come until the Millennial Kingdom. There is not going to be peace for as long as we await the Lord's return. There will always be wars and rumors of wars, right? Until He comes. And then following the tribulation, there will be peace. The Prince of Peace will lead us. And this is the type of peace that Christ offers. See, our world wants peace without any strings attached. They want peace just for the sake of peace and they can continue going on in their sinful lifestyle. That's not what God was offering. That's not what Christ came to do. He came to save us from our lifestyles that were tearing us apart, that were destroying us. This is the type of peace that is to come on the earth. It is a delayed peace. Well, the arrival of Christ was not a huge item at the time. Not a huge news item but we now understand the significance of His birth. That God is sovereign over the, the, the events of history and He causes everything to work out according to what He has planned. That God gives grace to the humble. That Jesus is better than John the Baptist and that Jesus is the promised Messiah. We know that God has orchestrated the events of history so that He would be born at the fullness of time. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son to be born of a woman be born under the law. Galatians 4.4 4. And, and He was 
born at the precise location that God desired and demanded. He had a humble birth, but his life had eternal significance. And our our Savior, Jesus, is the promised Messiah. And we shout with the angels who sang with joy over His birth and who are calling all creation to join with them. And that's part of why we are here. To give praise to the One who has come, the King of the world, the Savior of us from our sin. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this day, this Easter Sunday, in which we can reflect upon the the death of Christ and His resurrection, and even tonight as we reflect on His birth. We're thankful that You were willing to send Him to this earth to die in our place, to be our substitute. And Lord, we want the whole world to know. It's a shame that, that more people didn't understand the significance of His birth. It's a shame that Even people who met Him rejected Him. And it's a greater shame even still that that we have Your Word and and we have many people in our day who reject it. They're looking for some sign, looking for something greater. Sometimes people don't turn to You because we fail to tell them. Other times they're simply obstinate to Your truth. And Lord, we want Your Spirit to do a work and the people that, that we come into contact with. Lord, give us unexpected opportunities to reach out to people and, and to share with them the Gospel that the angels sang about. Lord, give us expected opportunities, planned opportunities, where we can think through a way in which we can turn the conversation toward the Gospel. We want other people to know the good news of peace that is offered from our Savior. We pray that You would turn some to Your to your Son. Save them, even this year, we pray. Help us, Lord, to appreciate His birth and to appreciate His life. He was born to die. And He died to live. And He now lives to save. Lord, help us to acknowledge Him for who He is and to live our lives in a way that would would please Your name and that would honor Him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.